Well, thank you for joining us today for Gathered Worship. As Randy said, my name is Zach. I'm on staff here. Uh, Here at Christ Bible Church, uh, we have a commitment to the Word of God. It is central to what we do. It is central to who we are. And so uh, we'll be in 1 Kings 10 today. And I invite you all to open up your Bibles, open up the Word of God to 1 Kings 10 and read along as I'm about to read it. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with how to use your Bible, no shame in that. There's a table of contents right at the beginning. It'll tell you which page to go to. Or you can be bolder and ask the person sitting next to you what page it's on. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, we'd love to get you a Bible. That would be our gift to you. We also have, still have, some 1st and 2nd Kings journals out in the hallway, and those are our free gift to you as well. Please follow along with me as I read in 1 Kings 10, starting in verse 14. 1 Kings 10, verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Besides that, which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants, from all the kings of the west and from the governors of the land, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. Three minas of gold went into each shield. And the king put them in the house of the forests of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps, and the throne had a round top. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps. The like of it was never made in any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forests of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made silver as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And and Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's traders received them from Kew at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, you are good. Father, we come to you today uh, praising you because you have called us from death to life. You haven't just called us from death to life, but you've called us to life together, both with you and with each other. Lord, I pray that we bring you glory today, that your name is made known. Uh, I pray for myself as I'm here preaching, Lord. Uh, Guide my words and let you be the one who speaks. Let your word be the thing that is heard. Lord, I I pray that 
you're preparing the hearts of all of us today to be convicted by your word where we need to be convicted, encouraged where we need encouragement, and Lord, for those who don't know you, who don't call themselves children of God, Lord, I pray that you reveal yourself to them today so that they may join in worship of you. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when Solomon becomes king, like every other Old Testament king, character, figure, leader that we come across, uh, there is an anticipation, there's an excitement, there's a hope with Solomon that he will be the one, the good king, the true king that finally restores Israel, restores God's people. That's what God's people are hoping for all throughout the Old Testament, from Adam to Abraham, Moses to David, and now we're here at Solomon. That's the yearning of the people of the Old Testament. And like all those other characters in the Old Testament, Solomon fails. In our text today, whether or not Solomon is going to fail is no longer debatable. In this text today, we see Solomon choose to live a life of sin, choose to live a life of rebellion, unfit for the king of the people. And so if you're God's people and you're reading this, you're reading it with a tone of grief. This man that you were rooting for, we all know that feeling, right? This man that you're rooting for, that you're hoping for, and you watch him fall, and you watch him fail, and you watch him sin. Another king who's turned to sin. And now we come to this text today, and I would argue we should feel the same way. God reveals to us the truth about sin. If we were going to boil down what happens in today's passage to one word, the word would be sin. Sin happens. And so the text forces us to consider, uh, consider sin and ask ourselves a question. How should God's people respond to sin? And that's the question we're going to be asking today. Uh, turn with me, well, I just read 1 Kings 10, turn with me to Deuteronomy 17. Every preacher we've had for 1 Kings has mentioned, to one degree or another, Deuteronomy 17. I will not be the exception. Uh, I'm just the only one who's mean enough to actually make you flip through your Bible and find the page. Uh, I'm doing that because I believe today's passage is the most explicit failure of the expectations of kings that Deuteronomy 17 lays out for us. If you're reading Deuteronomy 17, you go to uh, verse 14, it says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you possess it. Dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One among your brothers you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. This is God's word. Solomon is the wisest person on the planet. 
which means I'm making a bit of an assumption here. I think it's a fair assumption. He knows what Deuteronomy 17 says. He's the, he's the king and he's the wisest man in the world. There's nothing you could say to convince me that he hasn't read Deuteronomy 17, which means Solomon knows exactly what he's doing in 1 Kings 10. He's gathering gold, he's gathering horses, he's sinning. He's sinning and he's sinning and he's sinning and he knows that he is sinning. The, the rules for the king were very simple. Don't have a bunch of wives, don't have a bunch of gold, don't have a bunch of horses. Those are rules I've obeyed. Those are rules we've all obeyed, right? Solomon can't do them. We look at the text back in 1 Kings, 1 Kings 10, and consider the nature of sin. It starts right at the beginning. 1 Kings 10, verse 14. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Now, 666. I know where all of our brains went as soon as we saw that, right? Uh, I, the story would be interesting. The sermon would certainly be more interesting if we were about to turn the page and find out that Solomon was the devil. Uh, however, I don't think that that is the case, right? I just want to say that. I know, you know, it, 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 that's not, I don't think that's what's happening. Uh, I think what's happening, however, is we're actually just seeing that Solomon was filthy rich. 666 talents of gold is a lot of gold, it's a lot. And we see that that continues. So that's what he made, verse 15, besides that which came from the explorers and from the business of the merchants and all the kings of the West and from the governors of the land. So Solomon makes 666 talents of gold plus everything that's getting brought in from the governors of the other lands, from the merchants, from all the explorers who are finding stuff. He is the richest person ever. He is very, very wealthy. Now, uh, if you're a sports fan like myself, there's one thing you know to be true about athletes. They make way too much money. Professional athletes make a ton of money. And every year, we see something like a script. It happens every year. Uh, there's a guy who's going to get a very big contract, basketball player, football player, $200 million, signs his name on the dotted line, and ESPN is right there with a the microphone, and they say, what in the world are you going to do with all that money? That's the question that 1 Kings 10 has set up for us with Solomon. This passage starts with, look at all this money Solomon has. So, Solomon, what are you going to do with all of that money? Well, the text answers it. I'll jump back in here and review it again. <clears throat> Verse 16, King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He made 300 shields of beaten gold, three miners of gold went into each. Puts them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. King also made a great ivory throne, overlaid it with the finest gold. The throne had six steps. The throne had a round top. Each side, on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrests while 12 lions stood there, one on each end of the step. All Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, pure gold. None were of silver, Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships used to bring, come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacock. So Solomon, what are you going to do with all that money? Really, the answer is he does a lot of home renovations. It's very relatable. 
Uh, No, Solomon doesn't use this gold for the temple. He doesn't use all this gold uh, for the spread of God's glory among the nations. He doesn't set up huge humanitarian efforts ending world hunger. He makes shields for his house. These are not 500 shields that he puts in the barracks, sends out to all his soldiers on the front lines. He puts them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. They're in his living room. Consider that. Consider the picture. Do you have room for 500 shields in your living room? This, this dude is extravagant beyond imagination. He is wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. The text does not want us to miss it. He is rich. And then Solomon moves on from the shields to his great ivory throne, overlaying with gold, obviously. This is Solomon we're talking about. It's not going to just be ivory. He, lay, he overlays it with the finest gold. And it's a majestic picture being painted. In order to... Solomon's sitting on his throne. In order to get to him, you're walking up to his house. As you start getting closer to his palace, the monkeys are swinging on the trees. The peacocks are walking around. You're tripping over silver because it's worthless. It's just laying on the ground. You walk in. You've got 500 shields hanging on the wall, your shiny reflection in each of them. You get to the throne room. He's on this massive throne room. There's 14 lions, I'm assuming, are made of gold as well. It's, it's a crazy, crazy picture. But how should we respond to that picture? We should respond with grief. Because consider the road Solomon is on. He's showing us how he's answering the question. Solomon is showing us how he responds to sin. He can't get enough of it. He can't get enough gold. He can't get enough horses. He can't get enough power. He can't get enough control. He cannot get enough. So what does he do? He gets more. And he gets more and he gets more. There's a poetic irony taking place that I think the author wants us to see in the way he describes gold. Gold is mentioned 10 times, right? It's at the forefront of this passage. And a lot of times, in this text, a couple of times, there's a purity about gold. The the cups that you drink from are pure gold. They're refined. They're perfect. The throne that Solomon lays on is overlain with the finest gold. There's a perfection about it. And the gold may be pure. The The gold may be perfect. But by its very presence, it has defiled Solomon. The gold may be perfect, but Solomon certainly is not. But this desire for satisfaction, this desire to pursue more, is often a desire we chase. It's something very relatable. We're tempted to respond to our own sin the same exact way very often. He wants, Solomon wants security, status, power. He's the ruler of an empire. But the reality is he will never be satisfied. And neither are we. Aren't we tempted to think if we just had the right stuff, we'd finally be happy? I need a bigger house. What does that mean? I'm working overtime. So what if I have to miss church on Sundays? It's going to be worth it when I have that bigger house, when I have that pool in the backyard, when I have that nice car. Kids wake up, I'm already at work. I get home, kids are already in bed. They'll be all right. They can cry in a Ferrari. 
we just had the right stuff, wouldn't we be happy? Well, we'll never have enough of the right stuff. Aren't we tempted to think that if we had a significant other, forget about a pure significant other, like we're talking about the goal, just a significant other, we'd finally be happy. All the married people looking around for the single people. Well, the married people are not off the hook because how many times have you said, if my wife just did X, Y, or Z a little bit better, I would finally be happy. I'd finally be satisfied. This is what sin does to our hearts. It wants us to chase it more and more. It makes us think that we'll be satisfied if we have it, but we won't. Sin will never satisfy. We see in 1 Kings 10, Solomon takes the opposite lesson. He says more, more, more. And so I'll ask you the question. What do you say to that sin promising you satisfaction? How do you respond to sin? Looking back at the text, verse 23. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. So we see this picture of Solomon, and as we've discussed, it should make us grieve because we know he's in the direct violation of God's law. But is that how the people of God, or the people in general, are responding to Solomon? No, they're standing in awe of this man. They have reverence and respect. They worship this man. Where are God's people calling Solomon to repentance? Because the God's people have read Deuteronomy 17 too. God's people know what's up. Where are they? They're too busy swimming in their gold like Scrooge McDuck. They're living the dream. They don't care, and it's not just God's people, but all the people are coming before Solomon and bending the knee. The whole earth wants to be in this man's presence. The whole earth wants to hear the words that are rolling off the throne of Solomon, the wisdom. They want to see the wealth with their own eyes. And they don't want to just see it. They don't want to just hear it. They don't want to just be in the presence. But they are feeding Solomon's sin. Look at verse 25. Every one of them, every single one of them brought Solomon his present. Rather than calling Solomon away from his sin, they turn to him with sin in their hands. Rather than telling him to turn away from the gold, turn away from this wicked way of living, they turn to him with more gold just so they can hear him speak, just so they can be in the same room as him. The devil will always, always, always tempt you, tempt me, tempt us, to overlook and participate in the sin of others when it brings us some sort of satisfaction or benefit in our own hearts. That's what we're seeing with God's people. Solomon's looking to satisfy himself, and so were God's people. So they overlook what Solomon's doing. They partake in what Solomon is doing. How do you respond to the sin of others? How you respond to the sin of others says a lot about what you believe to be true. If the sin of others is no big deal, what you're saying is their eternal destiny is no big deal. You're not going to say that out loud. Right? But do you overlook the, the shady business practices of your partner? 
because he really helps your bottom line. He knows how to close those deals. Do you overlook the law when it negatively impacts your political candidate? Yes, is the answer for all of us so often. Friend, do you overlook the sin in your brother or your sister? Just because it's going to be awkward to bring it up. When your non-Christian buddy is telling you about his weekend, it's littered with drugs and girls, do you grieve? Or has a smile slowly crept up on your face? He's a good storyteller after all. It's a funny story what happened this weekend. Do you ever turn to prayer and ask God to take away that sin from somebody else? Do you ever turn to God and pray on behalf of somebody else? And I don't just mean, you know, they're not feeling well, I pray that they feel better, or uh, they really made you mad, so now you're going to pray that God takes away that sin? No, do you see the sin of others and you pray to God that he will heal them of it? That he'll save your sibling from this life that will bring them destruction, to protect your coworkers from sin that will destroy their lives? Do you love your next-door neighbor enough to come to God on their behalf. As a quick aside, uh, I will plead, I will beg, uh, pray for us. And King Solomon is the wisest person in the world. You're listening to the sermon, so you know I am not. There is no one who is immune to this level of compromise. Pray for the elders and the staff at CBC Anywhere you go, pray, because no one is immune to this temptation to start overlooking God's commands when it brings us benefit. People in the pews, money in the offering box, you name it, right? And even further, uh, if you're a member here at CBC, it is your God-given privilege and duty to respond to sin, whether it's your own sin whether it's my sins, the sin of someone in your small groups, you have made a commitment out of love for that person and love for God that you are going to help them walk with Jesus. You are called and commanded to fulfill that. So I'll ask again, not just how do you respond to sin, but how do you respond to the sin of others? And Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. This is verse 26. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Kew, and the king's traders received them from Kew at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver, and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. On the final scene of our passage, we see Solomon once again disobey the law of God. Disobey the law of God we find in Deuteronomy 17, and he pursues the purchase of horses. Well, why does he do that? Well, earlier we talked about he does that because he's sinning. But he's wise. He's a good businessman. 
So why does he do that? Well, he does it because buying those horses was a good deal. He got those horses for a steal. Look at the price of them. Look in verse 29. A chariot for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. So that's 750 pieces of silver to Solomon. Let me ask you, how much is silver worth in the era of Solomon? It's nothing. Silver is as common as stone. It is the dirt you walk across. It's like a penny. When you're on the street, you see a penny, and there's something goes on in your brain. Is it even worth it for you to bend over and pick this up? And the answer often is no. And then the kid is running, and you're like, I don't need that penny, right? That's what silver is to Solomon. Solomon now has a chance to reinforce his empire, buy these horses, fortify the cities under his control, and in his mind, it doesn't cost him anything. It costs him nothing, he thinks. But this is the nature of sin, right? Consider for a moment Adam and Eve in the garden when sin's about to enter the world. What does the serpent say? He looks at Eve and he says, you will not surely die. Let me paraphrase that. It's not going to cost you anything to eat this apple. In fact, says the serpent, you will be like God. It's not going to cost you anything. In fact, you are going to gain something. You are going to gain power, control. You will be like God if you sin. Look at Solomon and understand the power that sin has over you. The terrifying thing, the wicked thing about sin is that sin has the power to convince you that it is good. Why doesn't Solomon repent? Because he thinks everything that he's doing is good. Why don't the people call him to repentance? Because they think he's doing a good job. Why don't you repent? Because you think your sin is good. It isn't going to cost me anything to watch porn. I'm not married, or maybe I am, but my wife's asleep. I can delete my history, no harm, no foul. It doesn't cost me anything. What do I gain? I gain power, I gain control, I gain my desires. That's a good deal. It doesn't cost me anything to yell at my children, to be harsh with them. My husband's at work. He's not going to see it. He'll never have to know. The kids, they'll forget by lunchtime. What do I gain? I gain some peace and quiet. That's a good deal. For the non-Christian, I bet it sounds like this. I don't gain anything by becoming a Christian. In fact, I lose all the things that are good to me. I'm not going to be chained up and held back by some God who can enforce all these rules upon me. My life is good the way it is. But it's a lie. We buy into this lie and then we sin and we choose to sin, and we love to sin, and we think our sin liberates us. But I want us to look at one final detail in this passage on the horses. Consider one final detail of this deal here. Where does Solomon buy these horses? He buys them from Egypt. He buys them from Egypt. Egypt! This wicked nation that held Solomon's people in chains 
the nation that whipped and persecuted and oppressed and enslaved God's people for generations. Solomon joyously, intentionally skips on over to make a deal. Get some horses. And so it is with you. Your sin is not some shrewd business partner that you can make a deal with, that you can bargain with. Your sin enslaves you. Your sin is your enslaver, and you are chained by it. You are made powerless by it. You die because of it. And there is nothing you can do to break the power that this sin and shame has over you. There's nothing you can do to buy your freedom. And even if there was, you wouldn't take advantage of that purchase because you like your sin. You like these chains. You find them quite comfortable. You enjoy them. And so I'll ask the question again. How do we respond to sin? Well, here's the answer. We can't. All we can do, you and me and Solomon, all any of us can do is turn back to our enslaver again and again and again. Doomed to an eternity separation from God, separation from all that is good and holy because we are chained to what is wicked in our own hearts. But there's another question to ask. How does God respond to sin? How does God respond to Solomon? Look again at verse 24. The whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. See, God has every right to reject Solomon. God is the one who gave Solomon his wisdom. Now Solomon has turned his back. God could snap his fingers and Solomon's as dumb as a pile of bricks. He could do that. The people turn their backs on God. God could turn his sh shrug his shoulders and turn his back on them. You and I... We turn our backs on God. We reject God because we'll look for anything and everything other than him for salvation, for comfort, for peace, for security. But the author of 1 Kings simply reminds us, God is faithful to Solomon. God is there for Solomon. God is faithful to the people. And God is faithful to you. Now, Solomon isn't faithful to God. The people aren't faithful to God. You and I, we aren't faithful to God. But God is faithful. And because God is faithful, he has an answer to the question. Because God is faithful, he has a response for our sin. And that answer is Christ. See, we run to the thing that chains us. We think it's how we're going to free ourselves. Christ runs to the cross, and he actually does set us free. All the things that keep you in bondage, that keep you a slave to your sin, all the wickedness and sin and shame in your heart that lead you to choose gold over God, that lead you to choose horses over God, Jesus takes those upon himself. He wears those chains. He suffers that punishment. So you can finally be free. So you can turn away from Egypt and you never have to go back. 
You can turn away from Egypt and go to the promised land. You can turn away from death and have life, eternal life, with God. Now, in 1 Kings 10, we see Jerusalem, and we see a Jerusalem littered with gold. But eternal life with God shows us a different Jerusalem. A Jerusalem without the people filled with sin, without the wickedness, without the shame, without the chains. Revelation 21. The holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the gate, at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold. We read that, and we should grieve. Because we don't get a ticket to that city. We can't earn a ticket to that city. That can't be bought. That can't be earned. That can't be won in victory. A ticket to that city is found only when we put our faith in Christ and turn from sin, knowing that God is faithful to forgive our sin. And so I'll ask you one final time today, how should you respond to your sin? Let's pray together. Lord, you are good. Father, we confess to you today that we turn to our sin. We always turn there. We want to turn there. We love to turn there. And we think it is good. But we know through the work of Christ that you are good. That you are faithful to us. And we come before you today and we ask Help us each and every day to turn from the things that put us in chains. To remind us of your love for us. To in your grace and mercy reveal yourself to us fresh, new, every day. So that our love for you, our devotion to you, is never ending. So that we don't turn to gold, we don't turn to horses, we don't turn to our own sin. But we turn to you as the God who is faithful to us. Lord, we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen.